I'm hopeful that the industries that have the biggest impact on the future of humankind will be the ones that adopt change the quickest. Almost everything that you can see with your eyes comes from either construction and engineering or manufacturing. And I hope that the, there is a mindset shift where the adoption then skyrockets of any form of technological innovation. If you look at the brain power that goes into Silicon Valley, it is disproportionate to the rest of the brain power that gets used for anything else. So I think in a sense, it's been a waste of brain power. It's been a big economic powerhouse. It's generated trillions of, of value. But I think it has not helped the big societal, big planetary issues that we face. If you remember a few years ago, all this mass hysteria for the HoloLens. And reality is that has not happened. I don't know of a single team that is using HoloLens or equivalent. And I think part of it is maybe because people don't want their eyes to be covered, but also there's this barrier that sits between the theoretical and the physical. So how do you overlay the theoretical virtual world, if you want, to the physical world? Hey, Alan, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Alan, co-founder and CTO of Mplan. My background is a mix of computation and research. So originally I am a computer scientist. I worked in high-performance computing, in high-frequency trading. And whilst I was doing that, there was an emergence of deep learning and machine learning. And so I did a part-time PhD in, in machine learning theory. And when I got to the end of that, I realized that I wanted to take a little bit more risk. I wanted to be a little bit more adventurous. So I left finance and uh, joined an incubator called Entrepreneur First, which is where I met my co-founder. And that's how we started Mplan. Mplan really was started to answer one of the very difficult questions about projects, which is why is it that when you talk about a project, the general wisdom is that you should double the time and double the money. How does that happen? How does it unfold? How can we predict it and how can we prevent it? That is obviously a very hairy, very gnarly question that if anybody knew how to solve, they would be trillionaires by now. So we decided that being the big question, we'd have to then iterate and find something that we could do. And so what we found very quickly that we could do is we could take construction schedules and make forecasts and projections on those and figure out what is going to happen to your project as it goes on by using, at the time, deep learning and, uh, and machine learning to project those things in a probabilistic way. Obviously, the mission has evolved and the company's been around for six years. We have evolved our mission. We have evolved our methodologies. We now describe ourselves more as an AI company. In the broader sense, we do a lot of other things that are not just predicting from schedule. And we operate still in, I would call it the project controls, risk, project management space. So massive space. So project controls. So a lot of folks listening will be very well familiar with that. When they think about it, it may not necessarily seem something that has evolved dramatically over the years, but as someone leading in the evolution of this space, would you mind giving 
folks a, a glimpse into what does the future of project controls look like? If you want to think about the future of project controls, maybe it's worth thinking about a little bit about the past of project controls as well. So I'm going to rewind a little bit before we move forward. And the past of project controls is very interesting, right? Because project controls is a component to broader project management, right? And it's that part of project management that thinks about reporting, progress, projection, cost estimation, planning. So a lot of the detail oriented and connecting the project management to what's happening on the ground. That's why it's called project controls, right? And it's less about the strategy of the project and more about the implementation of it. And it came out of necessity, I think, right? As time went on, projects have become more and more complex, right? Not necessarily bigger, but more and more complex. There are also bigger projects. But if you start thinking about all the big energy projects, think of Hinkley Point C or all the nuclear power stations that are being built around the world, those are big projects. And likewise, there's all sorts of other things, transportation, infrastructure, et cetera. Those start having so many interdependencies and so much complexity that you need dedicated teams and dedicated functions and disciplines to deal with that. So that's where project controls comes out. You would rarely see project controls as a separate function show up on a $2 million project, right? However, those components still exist, but they usually get incorporated into usually there's one project manager that kind of does everything and they do that as well. Right? In a sense, project controls has grown a lot in the last 50 years in terms of the size of a project controls team within a project. Right, And what I think is going to happen in the future is that project controls is going to gather more and more responsibility, right? Because that's what it's been doing. And that's where the inertia of this, of this system is going. We're going to have more and more responsibility accumulated by project controls to look at more and more detail, but also lots and lots more complexity and aggregating it together. And in a sense, project controls also work very closely with things like PMOs and may be sometimes hard to distinguish between the two and the function of the two. And so there'll be a lot more cooperation between the two where then we can get views of what is happening. And one of the things that will improve, usually project controls right now operates on, if you're lucky, a monthly timeline, a monthly iterative cycle we're going to see that cycle reduce itself dramatically. I'm not sure exactly what the timelines are going to look like. I would hope to see us go down to weekly, hopefully daily reporting and project controls where you can actually see that level of granularity of how are things changing? Because otherwise you have enormous lags. And that's one of the problems that people complain about a lot in project controls now, which is where I think automation, software, and AI are going to be able to play a big part is bringing those cycles dramatically down. I think one of the one of the really interesting points that, are, that applies to the work that you do at Mplan and project and the world of project controls is a lot of attention in the marketplace, a lot of the attention from investors and the big newspapers and everything else often gets directed to the robots, the the big visible examples of automation and AI. So a lot of the attention in the market often goes to that bringing robots into Sellafield and whatever else. But actually, one of the most important functions of the world of construction is actually being able to deliver it. And yes. the single biggest hurdle to that all comes down to project controls. So it seems that 
all of these wild dreams that we have as, as humanity, whether it's improving the resilience of our water infrastructure network or move over to renewable energy, or whether it's the folks out in Saudi Arabia building the line, all of these massive, big things that people think of and these big ambitions that we have, it all comes down to the simple principle of actually being able to deliver it as planned, which is where project controls comes in. So it's a really interesting and quite significant dependency that we have. So it's really important that we get it right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, there's a lot of nuance to what you just said as well, right? Because if we're thinking about the ability of delivering things as planned, a plan is really just that it's a statement of intention, right? So project controls also has this added responsibility of being able to react when things inevitably don't go according to plan, because at least if you look at, you know, even physical theory, anything in the future has certain degrees of uncertainty. If you think about building something as big and complex as the line, as you mentioned, there's enormous amounts of uncertainty. So if you put enormous amounts of uncertainty next to a plan, you get to the conclusion that that plan is only a statement of intention and things are going to inevitably deviate one way or another. So then project controls really becomes necessary as a way of dealing with the unexpected and trying to keep things as, under control as everything changes. So we set at Mplan, we set the vision that we want the ambition of projects to no longer be limited by the risk appetite. Because in a sense, the decision to go ahead with a project or not, and usually this happens during a process of final investment decision in a lot of organizations, but comes down to maybe cost and timeline, but a lot of it is also the risk appetite of the organization to put that much on, pardon my pun, on the line and uh, with the uncertainty amounts attached to it, right? So there's in final investment decisions, there's a lot of talks even about risk contingencies, which may be enormous in some cases, right? So if you put all of that together, then project controls becomes vital to being able to deliver on time and deliver on budget, whatever those things mean. But even when you don't, it becomes vital to be as good as you can and being able to guarantee that the things that you're doing are the things that make you as good as you could be. And ultimately, if as a species, we're not able to do that, we're going to end up self-limiting on the ambition of our projects, right? There are only a few people in the world who are willing, willing to risk their entire net worth on a single project. Other than that, most organizations will not be willing to do that kind of risk. And governments themselves, a lot of the time, will pull out of things that might actually be beneficial. Right? I think a lot about the James Webb Space Telescope, which now is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the best projects that we've built in the last few decades, but it got very close to being canceled by Congress because of budget and time overruns. And that, that is something that, you know, if we had made that decision because we weren't able to withstand that amount of risk anymore or that amount of delay or cost overrun, it would have cost us our ability to understand the universe even deeper, which is one of the fundamental things that leads to a lot of discovery and innovation, right? So. I feel motivated by these things, and this is why I care about project controls and project delivery. It's a pretty scary idea that some of these massive 
planetary challenges that we are up against might not be able to be resolved. We just simply cannot keep our house in order because mm. we can't manage a project. It's a pretty scary idea. And the, the challenges that we have up against us are big enough. So in actually being able to, once we identify the potential solution, we need to be able to just deliver it as planned. And I think one of your recent quotes from LinkedIn was a, it provides quite a nice segue to this in, in terms of actually solving big problems. It was, I think AI killing SaaS is going to actually be a good thing for the planet. Already starting to see more founders choosing harder and more relevant issues to tackle. And it's only going to get better, which I thought yeah. was a really quite an inspirational quote. Would you mind just diving into that? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll give, I'll start by giving you some context to, to that post, which okay. is, yeah, I'm very much the frustration of our marketing department. I'm one of those people that sometimes I'm in bed, instead of scrolling Facebook, I pick up LinkedIn and write things. And then you have the typical face palm expressions from the rest of the marketing department. Yeah. So I, I cause a lot of frustration sometimes, but I think you know, this is how this happened. I was reading something else. Somebody else posted that I can't remember exactly how, what the content was. There was, there was something about SAS being under ambitious. And I think that is a very good point in the last 20 or so years, a lot of Silicon Valley innovation has turned itself into let's build another SaaS company. And maybe I should clarify, SaaS stands for software as a service, which is basically those products that you buy, pay a monthly fee and you log into on a web platform. So if you look at Silicon Valley in the last 20 years, there's, there's a lot of good innovation that came out of it, but there are also a lot of things which are basically just another software product to solve an HR problem. And someone builds it, gets it to, I don't know, a few tens of thousands of clients, sells it for a billion dollars, retires. That is good business, but it's not innovation, right? And if you look at the brain power that goes into Silicon Valley, it is disproportionate to the rest of the brain power that gets used for anything else. So I think in a sense, it's been a waste of brain power, right? It's been a big economic powerhouse. Make no mistake about that. It's generated trillions of, of value, right? Which is still great, but I think it has not helped the big societal, big planetary issues that we face. Right? And in a sense, AI is starting to kill SaaS as a proposition a little bit, right? If you look at the difference between VC investment into AI companies and SaaS companies, the difference is incredible now, where AI companies are still growing in terms of funding, whereas SaaS is very much in a crisis. And I think that's good because that crisis is going to redirect the attention of founders towards building AI companies. But if you're building an AI company and you're not incentivized by building a SaaS company, and also combined with the fact that there's a lot of things that you don't need to build a SaaS company anymore because there are large language models and generative models that can do that for you now, you end up being forced to focus on the harder problems. You end up being forced to look at climate change, for one. You're forced to look into drug discovery. You're forced to look into the quality of medical care. All these things, which are way more important, and I'm sorry for the HR professionals, but they're way more important than HR for us to continue to survive as a species. 
And I think that is can only be positive, right? There's a lot of societal issues that AI will cause, and one of them will be the readjustment of the workforce. But I think this specific one, which is the attention of brain power going to big problems and big developments is a good one. It reminds me of something I read a few years back, which was tongue in cheek, but it was that some of the greatest software engineers of our generation are stuck spending their time A-B testing the color of a new button on Facebook. It's, it's just this big challenge that we have in terms of free up the brain power from the mindless software as a service solutions that have a bit of money and are stealing the attention and directing it into actually solving meaningful challenges, which I think is actually quite a nice shift in, in the market at the minute, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited by what the next five years are going to bring because we're going to see a lot of our big problems starting to have dents made into them. Right. So look at what yeah. happened a few weeks ago, founder of DeepMind. So DeepMind merged with Google brain. It was a little bit. So DeepMind have now this model for drug discovery and it got spun out. It's a completely separate company, still part of Alphabet, right? Because they're not going to let go of that. <laughs> but it's a separate company, operates separately to DeepMind, same founder, same CEO, Demis Savis, and they're signing contracts with drug companies to develop new drugs very quickly. That is crazy, right? And even that's how the COVID vaccine happened. There's three variants of vaccines. Two of those had heavy AI involved in the design of them heavy use of AI involved in the design of them. And that was before all these discoveries, right? It was before generative AI. Think of the number of people that would have died if we had to do vaccine development the old day, old way, which takes five to 10 years. And I think that that is it's crazy that we're seeing these speed increases everywhere, right? Material development. That's again, DeepMind, one of them and everything else. Sure. You have some more futile or frivolous applications, but there's a lot of, a lot of really cool stuff. Just on that point of speed and going back to something you said a few minutes ago is this idea of iteration, step change innovation, mm. which I thought was a really interesting point. Would you mind breaking that down? Yeah. Iteration versus step change is an interesting one. So one of the things that you're trained to think about usually as a founder is what is the biggest step change that I can make? right? There is a problem though, which is if you show up too early, someone's going to come up with a general innovation that blows your current innovation out of the water, right? And this is something that I personally struggle with a lot, also in terms of FOMO. So I'm constantly thinking about what am I missing? But there's this interesting nuance about timing, right? DeepMind were not the first to look at drug, drug discovery with machine learning. This has been arguably going, been going on for 10 years now as a discipline. And just those who were, had the right idea, but were too early and had to build too much tech, maybe it would have been better in those cases to iterate something until you get to the point where you can do step change, right? Imagine that in 2021, you decided I am going to build the best conversational assistant that I can but you knew nothing about transformers and what was going to happen to them. I doubt that those two things would have happened because the moment you thought about language, you would have learned about transformers, 
but you would have invested millions into building something that then immediately gets blown off, blown away by GPT-3. And so this also creates that, that strange incentive where everybody now is trying to look for the biggest step change that they can so they can blow everybody else out of the water. So here's a question and thinking about engineering and infrastructure, mm. thinking about some of the challenges that we see on a daily basis, do you think we need iterative change or step change? Where do you think we sit on the scale or, or as an industry? I think we need both. I think we need both. There are okay. things that work well that need to be iterated. May, and I'm including in iteration automation, right? So you may have processes that work well and you just want to automate them. And there are things that will require step change. I think one of the things that will require step change is to a certain extent, the maturity of the whole industry with adoption of technology, right? I don't think we can iterate an inch a little bit forward and be okay. You've, you've been witness to this as much as I have of all the enthusiasm for the physical, right? You were mentioning robots, right? I'm going to, I'm going to see your robots and raise you by 3d printing houses. And if you remember a few years ago, all this mass hysteria for the HoloLens. HoloLens is going to change construction and everybody's going to have a HoloLens on their head. And reality is that has not happened. I don't know of a single team that is using HoloLens or equivalent, right? It doesn't have to be no. a HoloLens, but something AR. Let's generalize it to AR today when they're building stuff. And I think part of it is maybe because people don't want their eyes to be covered, but also there's this barrier that sits between the theoretical and the physical. So how do you overlay the theoretical virtual world, if you want, to the physical world? And it is a very complicated and difficult question to answer, right? In the same way that how do you automate the physical part of construction is very hard to think about, right? People are talking about 3D printing. Other people are talking about modular builds, right? There's a company that was setting up to build modular houses went bankrupt this week. But why is that, right? Because that on the surface of it sounds like a great idea. There was a, a LinkedIn thread recently about Katerra and you know, you're in Canada right now. Katerra was a Canadian company. They were going to apply all of the lean startup principles, bring everything in house, take all the risk you can, go fast. And it exploded spectacularly a couple of years ago. And I think we need the step change in how we manage these things to allow the technological step changes to happen. And do you think that automation delivered through artificial intelligence will allow us to actually be able to make use of some of this new change and in innovation that is just a little bit further ahead to us? I think so. It, it got outdated very quickly. But I wrote a piece which ended up on the Institution of Civil Engineering's blog about how AI can help engineering and projects. And at the time, I was talking about fast iteration. So if you can iterate things very quickly, then you're going to get to better outcomes. And this is part of what generative AI can help you do. In the same way that if you're writing a document and you don't have to type all the words, but you just have to be the director of the changes to the document, then you can move a lot quicker, right? I've 
sometimes likened it to what would you do if you had the power of a thousand interns that worked instantly, right? That can help with the adoption of also the physical innovations because you can de-risk the physical, physical innovations by speeding up a lot of the rest of the loop, which then rebalances the risk appetite, right? Because we're back to risk appetite. Why is it that yeah. Modulus didn't have any clients except for Bristol City Council, I think it was, and obviously I don't know anything about the internals of the company, but a lot of me thinks that it's down to the prospects that they were reaching out to not be willing to take that risk on a new company and a new method. If there was a way of de-risking it before you go in so that you can make that decision with a clearer head and a clearer conscience, then a lot of these physical innovations are going to get a lot easier to adopt. And I think it's understanding the full process that is required and then working out which parts of that process are suitable for what type of accelerants. So one of the, one of the really great examples I see at the minute within the world of engineering is, and to call them out by name, is a company called Transcend. So Transcend do automated design for waste treatment, waste mm -hmm. treatment assets. So Transcend, their Series B, they're backed by Autodesk. And what Transcend do, which is pretty exciting, is they automate the, the process design for waste treatment centers. So the approach to process design is very iterative. So you identify the process technology that is required for that waste treatment asset, and then you then go through a very iterative process to then iterate to find the optimal solution, which then meets the required outputs for that treatment asset. Mm -hmm. And what Transcend does is allows the engineer to input the, the required outputs and then it will, it will alter the process design, which I think is a very good example of where the industry needs to do more of. So it's identifying a specific part of a process and just automating it to the maximum opportunity. Take, and then the engineer takes that output and then gets on with their day. It's a really great example of something that could be done by say you to use your example, a thousand interns, but actually it's been done by an artificial intelligence capability. But then at the end of the day, it's the engineer making the decisions, the engineer that then takes that output, gets on with the day. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th this also almost touches on policy as well, if you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. So would you let a thousand interns make all the decisions or do you need a responsible engineer? Some of it falls down to accountability, et cetera, but those things still exist, right? And this is a great example of how I think a lot of this stuff is going to improve. There's a company called Cadify, which are basically building a conversational inter interface CAD, right? Which is like engineering, but you could do it in lots of different places, right? You can do it in architecture as well, where you describe what you want to change for the component that you're designing. And instead of having to move all the points, do all the measurements, it does it for you. You're still the engineer in charge. You still decided to do that. It's just automated away most of the boring part. And you still have to know how that works. You still have to figure out what is the right decision for your component. But I think this is where we're going to see those changes now. Do you think the challenges within the industry around industry fragmentation and the vast supply chains that we depend on might create a bit of a blocker for some of these new accelerants. Yeah, they already do, 
right? I, I don't even look anywhere else. If I look at my own company, there, there's a lot of blockers all over the place. And they're, they're the blockers that you would suspect exist, right? Which is tensions between owner and contractor, tensions between general contractor and subcontractors and informational barriers and to a certain extent procurement not being set up for things like this so if you're selling innovation to a company that has existed for 200 years that company is going to have a huge baggage of processes and systems and decision making that isn't equipped that's not something that they're set up for most of the time some of them are that is also a change that needs to happen as someone who has actually made this happen, has actually overcome this hurdle on some pretty big clients. What's the secret that people need to know in terms of actually making stuff happen? The secret is that you need to find those that actually want to make it happen. And those people exist, right? You may have a lot of inertia as an organization, but any organization will have tons of people who are excited by the technological progress. So you need to find those. And usually all the product management books tell you to go find the early adopters, right? This is what you're doing, right? You find those people that are excited by the innovation, excited by the progress, want to get to the future as fast as possible. That's where the sales process is. You have to convince them that your version of the future is the one that they want, which is down to like, how good is your product and what are you doing? But assuming that lines up, then you have created a cohort of believers that will push for the change, right? And I think a lot about EVs, mostly because I ended up leasing one recently. And so a lot of time I spent, I, I, I think about where am I going to find a charger when I go somewhere? But if you think about the change that we've seen in the world with EVs in the last five years, it's spectacular. And that has only happened because there were those people five years ago who were enthusiasts, people who would accept that it, it's not perfect now, but we're going to be part of making it perfect and making it work so that everybody's going to have an EV and it's going to be the new normal. And, and finding those people and, in a sense, waking up that spirit in them. And I think this is what Tesla did really well in the early days with the Roadster by effectively waking up the passion of, oh, you can have an EV that's great. You can have an EV that is not a milk float and isn't incredibly ugly. And so they made them believe that future that they wanted was possible anyway, because otherwise it's just, oh, I, I wish. I was just wrapping my brain around what the equivalent could be within engineering and infrastructure. What is the equivalent shift from a, a milk float to a, a Tesla Roadster, I wonder. I think the equivalent shift is, if we think about engineering, right, and if you think about the stereotypes of engineering, we need to let go of those. You've got the stereotype of the engineer who is someone who's very rigid and has everything. They line up their pencil with the desk and they plan every single little thing by hand and they're looking at every single detail. And that historically has been the stereotype because they had that responsibility. That was the responsibility of the engineer. And that then expanded to what you could call generally engineering. And I would include construction. I would include project management into that. There are a lot of similar 
stereotypical images. If we let go of that and we start thinking about the engineer as the person who has the knowledge to direct the act of creating something that is great and feasible, right? Then you'll find those people that don't think of themselves in, in the same way as a stereotype. And you'll find the people that are excited about the fact that, oh, I can I look at 50 variants of how do I construct this bridge in the space of two hours? That is going to be an insane change, even in the quality of the things that comes out, that come out. It's pretty incredible to think about the new approaches that could potentially be unlocked. The list of major asset owners, at least in the, in the UK, is, is quite a finite, small list. And I think there is definitely a, an ongoing shift where more and more of the senior leadership team in these asset owners are realizing that actually we're missing a trick as an industry. There are capabilities that many other sectors that aren't too dissimilar, such as say manufacturing, have as their business as usual capabilities that for some reason we aren't making use of and we need to overcome that. I do see an increase in shift and evolution and growth journey towards these new capabilities, which really brings me quite a lot of motivation for the types of challenges that we could then overcome because it's not an ambition point. It's not a, a capability point. It's almost more of a join in the dots type points because we've got the brain power. We've got the availability and the understanding of challenges. It's now actually just a case of joining in the dots to, to make it happen. Yeah. And we're an industry driven by case studies in a sense, right? Everything that, that gets done or is planned to be done either creates a use case or refers to other use cases. So I think what we really need to do to inspire those and wake up those that have this fire in them is let's create the case studies, right? You create the first couple of case studies and people start referring to them and it self-propels afterwards. It's obviously it's difficult to create those case studies to begin with, but time, but it's patience, hard work. If you look at manufacturing, like you don't even need to think about the innovations of today. You can think about the innovations of 20 years ago, such as computational fluid dynamics, right? How much computational fluid dynamics gets used in the water industry today compared to the computational fluid dynamics used in manufacturing? Forget Formula One, which are the biggest users of computational fluid dynamics. Anything that that goes into manufacturing that has a fluid that's moving will have some form of simulations of that kind. And there isn't a lot of transfers over either. And I'm conscious that we're out of time. Oh, one yeah. last question to finish. What are you most hopeful for in the future? So I'm hopeful that the industries that have the biggest impact on the future of humankind will be the ones that adopt change the quickest. If you think about construction and engineering, almost everything that you can see with your eyes comes from either construction and engineering or manufacturing. And I hope that the, there is a mindset shift where the adoption then skyrockets of any form of technological innovation. I'm talking about culture changes as well as medicine and, and I guess anything in between, like biotechnology, farming, everything that actually makes humanity 
long-term sustainable as well. And I hope that those industries are the ones that wake up the fastest. I knew it was a good question to finish on and that you'd give a brilliant answer. Thank you. <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This conversation has been such a long time coming and yeah, it hasn't disappointed. I appreciate it. And I'll I have enjoyed you. it so much. Thanks so much, Jack. Thank you.